Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Justin Fincher, who serves as Vice President for Advancement and the Executive Director of the Stony Brook Foundation at Stony Brook University. And Justin, as I was saying before we went live, unbelievable timing in that you all just announced a $500 million gift recently. And so we're going to dive into that. But first, uh, look forward to welcoming you and getting to know your story a little bit better. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. Well, one of my go-to questions has really just been to better understand the higher education journey of leaders in the advancement sector. And so take me back to junior year of high school, junior year of high school. Who was that, Justin? What was he into? And what led him to Rutgers University to study biological sciences? Just junior year of high school, that that does feel like a little bit of time ago. So uh, Navy brat growing up. So we moved, you know, a dozen times before I graduated high school. So I can remember, uh, you know, where I was at least at that point, but had moved moved a lot. Had just moved actually to Long Island. Um, well, tell to, me about some of the the Navy stops along the way. I don't usually make people go back even sooner, but there is. Uh, we've had a handful of folks that have, have been sort of in that military brat category, uh, Jim Langley being one, Mo Cotton Kelly, another, and uh, and you. Yeah, so a, a lot of back and forth on the coast. Uh, my dad went overseas a couple of times, but we stayed domestic. Um, you know, as he kind of moved out of the Navy, he stayed doing the work that he was doing in private industry, which kept us still moving around to different places. Lived in Tennessee, Denver for a bit, um, uh, moved moved uh, to New Jersey for a bit, and then graduated high school on Long Island, um, and uh, where I'm back now, which I would have never imagined, but to, to fill in those gaps, um, like you said, I graduated and went to Rutgers to pursue a, a degree in biological sciences. I was convinced as a 17-year-old I was going to be a pediatrician and and you know um, help help little kids uh, deal with some of their biggest moments in life, and then I I didn't know um, you know what happened on college campuses and as I got there uh, like the story of probably so many who are in our profession was incredibly involved and got to see this in, uh, this beautiful system of, of people who are helping everybody develop around them um, became involved as a student leader on campus had a lot of mentors and champions who who encouraged me to think about this work more broadly. Um, much to the disappointment of my, my advisors, academic advisors, right, I started to shift from uh, going pre-med to really thinking about college student development and higher ed administration. Um, and so my biological sciences degree shifted to focusing on human behavior, how people make decisions, um, how they connect with communities, and so I graduated and then went on to University of Maryland uh, to do my uh, master's degree, focused primarily on college student development and joined a multi-institutional leadership uh, development team looking at research across 100 college campuses, 100,000 college students to look at what are the factors that are clear and differentiating for student leadership development. Um, what, what are those things that help someone as an 18, 19, 20 year old um, become a, a stronger leader and develop that kind of North Star for themselves? So what um, are some of those things? What'd you learn? Sure. So um, it, it really it really is the environment that you're in, right? Uh, the people that you're around, the mentors um, that look and, and look and feel like you. Your your peers that have really disproportionate effect on um, on your ability to connect with a community, um, and then you know places that are non discriminatory. So my later work was really around um, belonging climates. Really before we were talking about belonging, I think as an as a profession, um, and even just perceived issues on a college campus for someone who looks like you can have a really um, long tail to it. And so a lot of our work was around making sure we're proactive about building healthy, healthy climates. When you think um, about all of that, I, I mean, I, I will just kind of accelerate to the, the status quo, the present moment here in mid 2023. Can, can any of what you just described exist in an online first education environment. I just saw a stat yesterday that 15% of uh, of people that are pursuing collegiate degrees are now doing so online. How do you get any of what you just described? 
Yeah, I think it depends on the online experience, and I I don't have enough research to to show right the the differing effects there. But if there are peer groups that are developed online, right, that are sustaining over time and small cohort base, right, if there is one to one time with um, a mentor, teacher, etc. Um, if you are in environments where you can go deep in topics, I think you can get some of that. Um, and, and maybe I'll just continue to get older and feel more and more old school, but there, I don't know if there's a replacement for those, those in-person moments where you get to have those hallway conversations and, and those kind of late night deep talks, right. With, with somebody that you've never talked with before, um, when you're logging in and out for a module. Yeah, there's definitely a uh, spectrum as it relates to organic osmosis relative to intentional and prescriptive experiences. And I think that that's a lot of what we're navigating um, in the remote working world, which is our primary model now at Evertrue. The, and and, and I, I suspect, you know, even though I asked you the question, that there might actually be ways to learn from your research and just be way more intentional about the experience that you are creating for people uh, and and prescribing conversations that happen virtually that center around the themes that support leadership and success as opposed to kind of hoping people find their way or, you know, letting people navigate around campus and, and stumble into that interesting conversation that leads to the mentorship that leads to career opportunities. So it's hard to say if there's, you know, a better way to do it, but but I think intentionality is probably going to be key, whether you're either offline or online. Yeah, and and how we've thought about even coordinating staff meetings with a big staff, right? We're flipping the classroom now of where before COVID, I think a lot of us would be guilty of when you bring hundreds of people together, they all sit in an auditorium and face a speaker who's giving them you know some information. Well, now we know we can deliver that in a really simple way, which we knew beforehand, but we were just, that was what muscle we built over time. So we take that time when, you know, I have a hundred of my staff in the room as precious time to collaborate and get people together and working across areas that, you know, you can, you can work together on issues where, hey, we can hop on a Zoom and one person can give you an update when we need to. But when you're in a room, right, being able to move around and connect with people is far more important. So it's really helped us look at those models differently. So as you're doing that master's work, as you're focused on the research, is advancement on your radar yet? Not yet. So as I kept looking at the outcomes associated with the work that I was doing, we were we were kind of measuring at the time of graduation. And so I became more curious about what, what happens a decade, two decades, you know, uh, from now, and what does that, um, does that shift for people over time? So then I started to look more in the alumni literature, realizing there wasn't a lot out there of doing these longer studies and, and how people connect with an institution. So during my master's program, between my first and second year, I, I did an internship at Hopkins and looking at their a young alumni program, student engagement, um, had to write a paper at the end that uh, unbeknownst to me kind of turned into a job description that became my first full-time job after I finished up the master's. Um, so I went to Hopkins to help them build an early engagement strategy. Um, and while there, I, I went back to University of Maryland to pursue the PhD part-time as well to keep the, the research and studying going. So to do that work, you're inevitably uh, trying to get your hands on data, coming up with hypotheses, trying to prove or disprove with that data. And I don't know much about your work at that time, but I just know based on what you've told me so far, that getting a clean, consistent, accurate data set had to be a challenge. Yes. So tell me about those constraints and then tell me about the nirvana state of if you could like design the studies that you were focused on with the hypotheses you were thinking about and have the perfect data set, what might we know about education that we're still not totally sure about today? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, perfect state would be that we just have, we have longitudinal data on everybody who's ever, you know, stepped Every foot move. on our college. On our Every job, 
step-by-step key leadership, maybe community leadership, just not just a a snapshot, but how that progressed from day zero post-graduation through 10, 20, 50 years. Yeah. And so there's there's kind of a famous framework that's used. It's called Aston's IEO model. So I'll geek out uh, for a second with you, right? So Alexander Aston, this, I haven't talked about Alexander Aston in years. So thanks for bringing this back to the surface, Brent. But um, his model is pretty simple, right? It's inputs, environments, outcomes, right? And so when he looks at the college campus, college students show up to a college campus all different, right? And oftentimes we as college campuses take credit for a lot of work that has happened um, before a student has got to us, right? Whether they come from a higher SES status, so they have more access to things, they've had different education, they have different support networks, et cetera. Environments are all the things that we can control on a college campus, right? We can control the curriculum. We can, we can help modify how they're experiencing the campus. The hard part is figuring out what are those key outcomes you really wanna measure and how do you make sure you can control for all those things? We, where we're not great yet is pushing that outcome out 30 years, right? What, what should college campuses be saying that they're trying to help somebody achieve when they're 50 or 70? And how are we shaping those experiences to get there? So that's, that's really the nirvana for me, is if I were able to say to an, a 17-year-old, right, come to Stony Brook, because when you're reflecting at your retirement party, here are the types of things you'll say because of this moment in time that, that we're here with us. And so when you think about that kind of work and, and framing it, inputs, environment, outputs, and then reflecting on this, the COVID period, uh, recognizing that it was brutal on many fronts, but it also presents kind of this amazing control group or study where the Justins of today who are doing this sort of research can just say, look, like we have a cohort of people where the environment equation, equation was radically different. Yep. And now we can take you know, the class of 2018, the class of 20 and the class of 2023 and see how much does this environment really matter after all? Right. Yeah. And um, I'll I'll tilt here slightly to talk about when I was at Ohio State before Stony Brook, um, we helped launch what is now called the Advancement Leadership Lab. Um, And that's uh, eight or so public institutions that came together to put um, their kind of emerging leaders through a, a year long in-person experience to a cohort-based experience to help develop their leadership capacity. And we said, uh, the researcher and me was, we're gonna do a three-year pilot, control all the variables and see what about this experience, you know, has the the direct impacts we're hoping for. So we're gonna have it all in-person, all year, three cohorts, three years. Uh, You can imagine what happened, right? We do the first all-year experience, COVID happens. We move completely virtually. Third year is now a hybrid experience. And now, um, fast forward, they're using all that different data to create a completely different experience. That is a blend of things that if that wouldn't have happened, we would have just kept proving the model that, see, this really expensive, resource-driven, everybody in person, flying everybody in is what works. So, um I think trying to control everything is not always the answer. It's it's learning and iterating as you go. Um, but but you have to understand what you're trying to hit at the end first before you get there. Do you have any hypotheses from that experience that you just shared? And then thinking about the future of higher education, it's going to take some time. It's going to take five years or 10 years or 20 years. And I'm sure there are countless uh, aspiring PhDs and, and others that are that are now tracking this this cohort and hopefully with better data and 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 more of those step by step longitudinal longitudinal points that that you might have wanted you know ten years ago. Um, what do you think the ahas might be five or ten years from now? Like, what are the uh, hypotheses? Recognizing you're not, you know informed on all of the specifics of the data, but you are on a college campus, you're having to you know, support broader institutional messaging around why higher ed, why now, why there's a value proposition. And you just witnessed the sort of forced evolution of the Advancement Leadership Lab based on everything you just described. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know if we are responsive to our audiences and constituents as quickly as we can be as high red, right? We just have not been as nimble as um, corporate has been over time. And I think this has forced that a bit, right? It is asking, we're, we were forced to ask those questions. Well, how do you deliver, um, how do you deliver outcomes and impact uh, when everything has been challenged about the model? Um, what we're seeing, I think, is the pendulum swing back to what is core to people, what they want to experience. But now there's a platform for people to say, but you can offer these other things in different ways. And now we expect that, right? That that wasn't on the table before for higher ed. So, so what do I think is going to be different? Um, I think we see people still wanting that in-person experience, right? They, they want to, to build those friendships and relationships that we know, we know by, based on the research will last them a lifetime and will be that leapfrog for them professionally and personally. Um, what, what we haven't solved yet, but I think this will force the point is how do you speed up those, those academic intellectual experiences with technology in a way that is supportive versus taking away from what we believed was sacred about the experiences before. Yeah, no. And I mean, look, I look at the, there's been a lot of headlines recently. Undergraduate college enrollment has dropped 8% from 2019 to 2022, the fastest decline in history. And at the same time, like we have just proven that it isn't, you know, it doesn't need to be binary, that there can be different shades of education ranging from traditional four-year on-campus fraternity, sorority, you know, rah-rah to 100% online. And then I'm sure there's all kinds of experimentation around varying mixes of, of hybrid and, and resuming undergraduate education. But it just feels to me like, given that whole flexibility and the cost advantages of the more online to hybrid model, there's got to be a way to bring that 8% back mm -hmm. high ROI for them and for the institution manner. And I know a lot of smart people are working on that, but it just feels like as painful as this post-COVID moment in time is relating to enrollment pressures, there is such an opportunity in front of us in higher education to just make it almost frictionless for people to be a part of this. Yeah. Well, and it's flattened things, right? So probably some of those people that would have gone to college before um, made that decision because in their small hometown, right, if they wanted a better job, they'd have to go and do that to be able to come back locally and, and advance. Now with a lot of hybrid and remote jobs, you know, that they probably are able to do some work outside of their local community that they weren't before. So there's all these different pieces of the Goldberg machine, right, that we have to sort out if, if we're going to make sense of this and actually make a difference. So tell me about the move to Ohio State, absolute, uh, you know, powerhouse institution, incredible brand, uh, really uh, effective and well-respected advancement organization generally, but certainly within, you know, the Big Ten specifically. I just had uh, Becky Fulmer, who's now down at UCF, oh, yeah. uh, on the podcast last week. So that'll probably have been released right before this discussion right. um, and have, have had the chance certainly to get to know you and others during during the time at Ohio State. But what stands out um, during that experience, you know, when you think about 2013 and, and arriving there and, and 2021 and leaving sort of pandemic notwithstanding, what are you most proud of um, having uh, influenced or accomplished for that team? Yeah, thanks. So I I worked in Mike Iker's organization at Hopkins, right, when he was there and when he joined Ohio State, right? And um, I, I spent time with him to say, what are you trying to solve here? And he outlined that there's a lot of opportunity and he was just getting started. So he wasn't sure what really the job was or what the direction was that he was wanting to head, but that he was about to have some fun. And if I wanted to join, he'd welcome me, right? And that's really kind of how the job started for me. And um, fast forward, spent eight and a half years with Mike and the incredible team there to build a, a truly um, powerful advancement shop that's integrated in so many ways that I think the profession aspires to because of his leadership and the leadership team that he built. And what I'm most proud of is the leaders that are there today, right? To, to, to rewind where we were in 2013, there were great leaders there, but probably weren't given the opportunity to just 
go chase the thing that you believe based on the data and the relationships and the um, the expertise that you have that is going to have the biggest impact on the place. And if you walk the halls of Ohio State's advancement team today, you will sense the energy and that the leadership is really distributed across the organization and across the institution. Um, and that's that to your Nirvana point before, right? That that I think is Nirvana, and that's that's how I'm wired, right? Is to just think about how you scale leadership, and then the results follow. And too often, I think we're pushing for results and not focused on the people that are are going to be the ones that are going to drive that. Tell me about some of the leaders who you worked with there who made an impression on you and an impact uh, on the organization, and why you feel that way. Yeah, um, well, Mike is Mike is the the standard, right? For me, uh, professionally, he's he's been the mentor that that I would attribute, you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent of of my success and and knowledge of the profession to him. Um, and then there's some overlapping uh, variables in there as well. So um, he he really built a team of of individuals. Um, Sarah Rubin, who leads um, development there. Um, Patty Hill Callahan, who led the the medicine side for a long time, um, Adrian Azan, who was who's who is a brilliant marketer who came in to help us all think just wildly differently about our work. Um, Jim Smith, who led the alumni association for a long time, who kind of came out of industry to talk a different language to us. Um, it was really magic, and there's others there, right? But just I, those immediately come to mind. The magic of those conversations of people who were coming into the room saying. Um, what are we really trying to chase and how are we going to do that? Put everything else aside. Like, how are we going to do that? Let's agree to that. And then let's figure out how we um, organize ourselves to get there versus um, how do we take what we have today and do 2%, 7%, 10% better next year. And so that spirit of mentors and leaders um, wasn't, it was infectious and, and really inspiring. If everybody listening could do a one-month internship with Michael Eicher, uh, observing, shadowing, what would they observe? How might they describe that experience relative to maybe, um, yeah. Um, you'd find somewhat, you'd find him consistently giving space for others to find their leadership. Um, uh, he always will ask the best question in a conversation, not to get to the answer that he wants, but to make sure that everybody's thinking through kind of the, the depth and breadth of a topic. Um, he expects when you're coming to the table that you're bringing your, your A game, right? And if, um, and if you're just too busy that you haven't been able to focus and get prepped for that, you have to own that, right? And and know that um, th that happens, but he's going to always expect you to bring your best and he expects excellence every day. That's um, an example of how he makes that clear because I do think some of the feedback we hear sometimes in the sector is that folks can be a little bit passive or avoiding confrontation or, you know, how do you sort of maintain positivity, but also challenging people? It sounds like he was good at that. Oh yeah. So I think the clearest way to, to illustrate that is if you walk in and you're maybe not fully prepped, not that that would ever have happened to me in my eight and a half years with him. Right. And you start to bring up an issue or a topic that you're supposed to own, but you've just been swamped that day, you know, he'll stop you cold and say, you know, if you put a piece of paper in front and it doesn't have the goal clearly across the top of the sheet of paper, right. Or if the conversation doesn't start with back to our earlier point, like, what are we trying to accomplish? then um, he will stop you and say, what is the goal? And then if, if not the, again, this would ever have happened to me, right? You spend three minutes trying to fumble around to, clear, to clearly articulate the goal. He would stop you again and say, okay, but again, what is the goal? Tell me in a sentence, right? And so what he, how he inspires excellence is clarity, simplicity, um, stripping away all the jargon, right? To say, what are we actually doing here? Okay, now that we're clear on that and we have a shared understanding, now let's talk about what we're going to do about that. And I, I use that every day. Um, I, I, um, and higher ed's not great about that all the time. Where do you think he learned that? Because that is not the typical uh, direct candor that you often would hear. 
Yeah. And direct candor is definitely something others who have worked with Mike would say about him. Um, you know, I, I think he's, he's been in this business a long time. Um, he's, uh, it's, it's how he's wired. I, I just call him kind of, he's very Zen-like too, right? He's pretty unflappable. He is unflappable. Um, so I, I just think he thinks about what are, what's the, the biggest impact I can have in this moment. And it's to help everybody get clear. Um, so I, yeah, I'll think about that one some more, but it is who he is. And, uh, after a very good run there, not a lot of people have a, a nine-year run in this sector. What drew you to Stony Brook? Tell me about the opportunity, the setup. How'd you hear about it? Was the university on your radar at all? Had this been a longtime aspiration? Just, just give me the setup. Yeah. So, um, it started with really open conversations with Mike years before that of just my kind of continued desire to have the broadest impact possible on the profession. And um, we kind of worked through what's the lens that I would look at future opportunities, whether at Ohio State or externally. And it was really clear to me that it would, as a product of public higher education, right, that it would be an R1, you know, AAU institution, public higher education um, with an academic medical center, right? And if, 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 that continued to evolve at, at Ohio State, which it did right throughout my time there, just continually um, uh, became more challenging and interesting. Um, but then I would give it a look. And so, um, you know, Stony Brook reached out and uh, I knew about Stony Brook having actually graduated high school nearby and Stony Brook being the first college campus I'd ever wa walked on, but hadn't really kept up with it since. So I took the initial call and um, started to get intrigued by what they were doing there um, started to talk to members of the senior team and the president here and started to fall in love with the place. And then conversations back and forth with, with Mike and mentors and frankly, my colleagues at Ohio state. And um, again, that culture of people wanting you to succeed, right. It wasn't a dark of night, which happens often in our business, right. Dark of night. Uh, you, you make a decision without anybody knowing, and then announce and everybody's shocked. This was really a, 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 a serious long conversation with a lot of folks to say this, this would be a really exciting uh, big sandbox to play in as the next phase. And I think I could do a little help for that. You know, I could um, make some difference here as well. Now, this was about two years ago, uh, probably to the month that you're finalizing the decision and so forth. And it has been a pretty transformational two year period since you've arrived. Did you have a sense of that? Did you expect that? I mean, some of this stuff had to be somewhat teed up, although I'm sure, um, you know, varying degrees of specificity at that time. And, and really, when I think about Stony Brook and having read more about some of what you all have accomplished just in the last couple of years, uh, just the, it, 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 I mean, there have been a lot of headlines around what happens when, uh, you know, a college campus, uh, a college goes under in a, uh, you know, in a small town in the middle of the country and sort of what the, the the negative repercussions can be. And it just feels like Stony Brook is sort of the polar opposite case study right now, which is like what happens when there's really tight collaboration, public-private partnership, um, you know, the intersection of, of education and both local and regional economic development. It, it just seems like kind of a, a rocket ship couple of years. But did you feel that when you walked into it? Um, I knew that it had all the raw, raw products to get there, right? Um, and that was a part of how I studied the opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's no secret sauce, but it's, it's again, getting the simplicity. Um, I think our work's always about leadership, vision, and urgency, right? And so I try to study leadership early on, right, from the president to the cabinet to the, the foundation board directors and others. And, you know, do we have the leaders who are really willing to push into the future. Um, the vision, right? The president was still relatively new, but um, it was clear that she was going to help shape a much broader vision that would inspire others. And then do we have a sense of urgency? And, and part of the initial urgency was uh, coming out of a, a you know pretty resource-constrained scarcity environment of support, not necessarily philanthropic, but state support um, over the past few years with COVID, et cetera. So 
there was a clear sense of urgency initially that we needed to come out of this and we need everybody's help to get us back on the track that Stony Brook was on. Um, and so those things then shifted over time as leadership became clearer. Mari recruited, you know, a, a, her team to get in place. Um, so we have more hands to start to really scale the opportunity. The vision uh, has become increasingly clear about where we want Stony Brook to be as the flagship of the future for New York. And then the urgency comes from a number of things that have happened here of um, clear deadlines, clear mandates from the state um, for us to seize that moment. And so we continue to use those three things over and over again to uh, keep ratcheting up, right, where Stony Brook is going to be in the future. So leadership vision urgency could be a football team, could be a university, could be a specific yep. vision, uh, but common themes. Uh, you know, that being said, it is it is a reminder. I think sometimes um, people think about, you know, these universities are such well-known brands regionally or nationally. And, it, you know, it becomes this sort of amorphous concept of like Stony Brook or what is Ohio State. And what you just shared and what I'm constantly reminded of on this, this uh, podcast is there's no such thing as Stony Brook or Ohio State. It's a composition of individual people with yeah. individual leaders that, you know, the vision can change and the level of urgency can be radically different. And even if the logo looks similar and the campus looks similar from a bird's eye view, the vibe, the feeling, the progress can be really different. And you do see that in sports sometimes, right? And, and I can't mention Jim Harbaugh, given where you just spent time, but an example of somebody that has been able to come in same brand, same institution, same marketability, everything is the same, except as the leader, outcomes have been generated in a really rapid period. And it seems like that's what you all have been living as part of Stony Brook. And with that, just tell me about the setup for this, this recent donation from the Simons Foundation. My understanding, not only $500 million, but on top of that, it unlocked another $200 million of public investment relative to a $370 million endowment. So you think about the entire history of philanthropy at Stony Brook, one fell swoop, really taking things uh, you know, to, to a whole new level. What are the immediate reflections that you would want to share with this audience who likely won't be a part of, of, of a gift at that level uh, anytime soon? Uh, and then what is the medium term, longer term implications for how Stony Brook's vision and urgency can change with that sort of resource injection. Yeah, and at first, I hope that all my colleagues, right, have have opportunities to to work at this scale of impact. Whether you know the the number of zeros, right, on 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 the end of it, are important, obviously, for the for the bottom line. But um, but the impact of of what they've done is is just difference making, you know, for so many generations. But these these gifts, um, how the, how this one's particularly structured, I hope we all can learn from, and I actually hope it swings some of the restricted nature of how we built our work, uh, the pendulum to swing. So, let me say too, yeah, completely unrestricted. It's it is the largest unrestricted endowment gift in U.S. higher education, five hundred million dollars. Yeah. So let me say first that this relationship 55 years long with Jim and Marilyn is built over to our, to your point before decades of relationships and people who have you know built um, their engagement with Jim and Marilyn and I'm so lucky to get to kind of steward this moment uh, with them and on behalf of the institution um, but it was clear to, to Jim and Marilyn and David Spurkel who's the president of their foundation that they have when you point to Stony Brook's excellence over the years, they are at the center of all of that. They've, they've believed in the place. Um, they have invested when Stony Brook needed it most, and they've helped um, build some incredible pockets of excellence throughout the institution. And as we spent time with them over uh, you know, the past year or two, it's, it was really sharing with them that impact that they've had Stony Brook story as just a 60 year young institution relative to heavyweights, right? That we're, we're um, trying to um, ladder up to and compare ourselves against who have a century plus on us. 
right? And, and when you look at those institutions, what, what was their story when they were 60 years young? Um, and many of them had philanthropists that believed in the future of the institution. And so as we continue that dialogue with them, um, they're truly the most generous people in all ways that I've, that I've gotten a chance to spend time with and the beauty of our profession. Um, they believe in what Stony Brook's going to be 100 years from now, right? And 200 years from now. And as we talked about how their next investment could signal something to the world and to you know the philanthropists that will come for Stony Brook generations to come, this was what we zeroed in on as the the key moment for this institution. Um, so you're right; it is it is a five hundred million dollar commitment. Um, the first three years of that commitment are um, a, a challenge match uh, for other philanthropists to come forward. So they've put forward two hundred million of that as a match for other philanthropists to come forward um, to to. Um, uh, to invest in our endowment. Um, each of those, their 200 million and the other 200 million from donors will each be met with a match from the state of 100 million each. Um, and so when you start to add that up and look at what the next seven years look like for the place, um, we will invest a new bill uh, $1 billion into our endowment. Um, all because Jim and Marilyn, you know, have, have been with us for decades and they, they know um, what Stony Brook can be. And this does bend the curve for Stony Brook in, in an incredibly powerful way. Yeah, that, I mean, that's an amazing summary and a good reminder that really we're talking about a lifelong of stewardship, which has created the opportunity for this level um, of investment, but but many, many years. And, uh, and, and just tell me about what the reaction has been with your staff, the reaction on campus, the reaction, you know, certainly there's been tremendous press, you know, headlines, interviews, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, you're kind of in the midst of that, or maybe it's just slightly starting to calm down given the exact time here. Um, but just give me the arc of the reaction and and then what this means for the alumni community more broadly. Uh, what does it mean for enrollment, for example? I mean, what are the second order effects that it's just too early to even understand the full impact yet? Yeah. So when I joined, right, I, I really thought about how do we create the enduring culture of philanthropy for Stony Brook, right? That's the really hard work that that we try to do every day. And seeing the the press event, you know, at at their foundation's headquarters and looking around the room and seeing every dean there, right, every member of the president's cabinet, um, almost the entire advancement leadership team, among others, um, our alumni association leaders, et cetera. Um, that was the powerful moment that that we we see a shift from um, uh, advancement being a a service to the to the uh, institution to the institution owning this culture of, of philanthropy. Um, it, the excitement's been palpable. Um, you're right that the campus has quieted down just because it, we're heading into summer. But it's really clear to me that the campus is expecting in the fall to keep this recognition and celebration going. So um, the outreach has been far and right, wide from alums who have reached out to us to say they've inspired me, and I haven't I haven't connected with Stony Brook in a while, and um, I, I want to. And that, I'm not I'm not being uh, uh, cute about that. That's really happening in real time, and and that's because of them, right? It's not anything that we've done, we will help support that, but it's because of their philanthropic leadership. I'm gonna ask a question and no worries if you're not comfortable answering it. Um, uh, the Simons family has all, and the foundation has all, first of all, he attended MIT, he attended mm -hmm. Berkeley. Yep. Massively philanthropic to those organizations mm -hmm. and a whole host of other organizations. Yep. How do you engage and shape a vision for philanthropy relative to the competition? And I know you're not thinking of it that way, but ultimately it could have been 400 million to Stony Brook and 100 million to MIT. It could yeah. have been 600 million to Stony Brook, uh, for example, under a different set of circumstances. So it, uh, when you're 
and maybe it's not that different than trying to divide up a hundred thousand dollar pie chart of philanthropy. But um, is it, and 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 how do you think about settling on a number, shaping a number when you're when you're in such a stratospheric level? Um, but even five twenty five versus four seventy five is one of the biggest gifts ever in history difference of the ultimate donation. Yeah. Um, Well, I think it starts from your individual institutions perspective of kind of that, that classic blue ocean strategy, right? It's not that there aren't competitors as you describe them kind of out there. It's just more of what, what is the biggest opportunity we could imagine that we're worthy of and how do we share that story with them? And then when you do that, it's their decision to make, right? Whether it's Jim and Marilyn or another another donor that you're working with to let you know where you sit in those priorities and, and frankly, how compelling your proposition is relative to others. Um, and then it's listening, right? It was, it was sharing with them what we believed Stony Brook's next um, uh, phase of growth could look like. And then hearing what they wanted to see us accomplish and what their priorities were and how they wanted to support us in the next phase. And so I'm not saying anything new that we haven't talked about as advancement. Um, But again, I I think often when we're looking at these relationships, we're looking at what they're doing at other places and things. And we never really know. We make a lot of assumptions why philanthropists at this level or or at the major gift level um, make gifts to other places versus coming forward and connecting with them of what you're trying to accomplish and letting them tell you what is or isn't going to be important to them. I love it. Tell me about the difference between talent management and talent leadership and why more folks should think about talent leadership. Oh, I I do kind of um, uh, talent management. It feels like I never want to be managed as talent, right? Do you? Um, But that's that's the word that we've used to kind of explain our progressive approaches now to, uh, you know, building leaders. And so, so I, I'm really trying to uh, get that language out of our team and hopefully across the profession at some point. Um, Talent leadership to me is that we all wake up every day thinking about how we're cultivating and developing leaders across our team. We're recruiting people in who we believe we can already see what their next two jobs and our organizations can be versus filling an opening that we have. And so that's that's the work that we're doing here at Stony Brook. And a lot of the work that I did at Ohio State was how do you continue to think about how leaders can grow and expand your institution versus managing them up uh, a line of, of opportunities that you want to pre, pre-direct. Um, we could talk about this all day. It's, it's definitely a passion of mine. Um, but if instead of judging performance management every year, right, we just, we judged everybody by how many leaders did you uh, help grow this year? Explain that to me. Um, what were the outcomes associated with that? And how are you going to double the number of leaders you help grow next year? Um, the profession be unstoppable. What is an example, uh, th- just framing it around leadership, vig- vision, and urgency, especially as it relates to urgency? Like, what are the characteristics of an advancement organization that might lack urgency versus one that has a healthy level of urgency? What would I see? What would I feel differently in the urgent environment? Yeah. I, look, I, I think generally we have campaigns all wrong in higher education, right? We set these seven-year targets. Uh, that doesn't feel super urgent to me on, a, on an everyday basis, right? And we set these massive goals. And as most donors feel, right, that doesn't feel very urgent to me because I don't see how my $100,000 gift is going to get you to your $2 billion goal. Um, so that's that's a lot of how we've organized our, our big, or, and all advancement shops over time. I think when you walk around an organization that has urgency and advancement, you see people every day focused on the next relationship that they're trying to build, advance, you know, um, uh, engage with the institution in a different way quickly. 
you see colleagues getting together around a topic that has a distinct need and that we have to solve today. If if you walked into Stony Brook's uh, meetings, whether virtual or otherwise with our fundraisers, right? They're all working together across their areas around potential relationships and how they can each help each other solve a problem, right? To, to move that forward um, with the goal of, you know, um, building a dozen new relationships within a three-month period, for example, right? So taking these long goals that we have that we set annually, and then often in some places you see that those goals don't happen until, guess what, two months before the year ends because the deadline was 12 months instead of three months. So a lot of this is just shortening these timeframes, not to manage people more closely, right, but to get more proximate about what we're trying to solve in real time. Um, and there's there's the difference again between that management leadership. Um, the the leadership approaches, we as a team need to get to here as quickly as possible. So what can you do from where you sit to get there as quickly as possible? So then once we do that, we can move on and do even bigger and better things. I once met uh, an author named Daniel Pink who has written a bunch about leadership and uh, he specifically at the time was was sharing insights around a book that he wrote called When, uh, and, and the subtitle was The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And just to your point, you know, the punchline was just that as humans, uh, there are peaks and troughs, course of a day, mornings, people are productive, midday, not so much, and then there's a scramble to get stuff done at the end of the day. And that applies to weeks and that applies to months and that applies to years. And so there are, you know, creative tricks that you can do to essentially manage against the troughs to, you know, hit the troughs. And, and I do think about that sometimes in the context of the capital campaign where there's the flurry of pre-campaign quiet phase, like let's go get to the minimum threshold at which point we can launch, let's launch. Uh, and then there's the sprint to the finish, but is the middle just that same trough that, we all maybe somewhat experience every single day of our lives. And are we, are we essentially inviting a long trough with the current structure of capital campaigns? Right. Or simplifying that to annual goal setting, right? Or annual performance that if you have a July 1 fiscal year, why do you always see the spike in December and the spike in June? Well, December is what um, is motivated by government, right? And taxes and those things generally. And June is because our fundraisers and, and teams are trying to hit the goals that were set 12 months ago. So if instead you shifted that to quarterly, or you know, if you got really disciplined about monthly, which a lot of corporate sales organizations totally. do, totally. right? Um, uh, it helps us all get a bit more focused and and more disciplined about the work. And there are places out there that are doing that, right? But on a whole, I don't think our profession is there quite yet. Great point. Very few examples of clear monthly goals. Yep. If, if you did nothing but take the annual goals, divide them by 12, make them monthly, I suspect progress changes uh, quickly. And, and it is a little bit ironic. I mean, we've got a lot of folks on who, you know, their gateway to advancement was they were a student caller. One thing leads to another. They're a high performer. Somebody recruits them and now they're, you know, leading an advancement organization. And in some cases, it's just been mind boggling to me that the level of precision with which we were measuring the inputs and outputs of a student caller on a daily basis, including spiffs for certain performance goals, bonuses, et cetera. And then you contrast that with a day in the life of a gift officer, and I'm not saying, you know, with all due respect to gift officers, my point is there's just not as much using the word you don't love, you know, management or micromanagement. And so how do you sort of balance that certainly level of, uh, you know, urgency and clarity that a student caller has every day when they show up and not just apply that directly to uh, the gift officer work, but what might we learn from certain things that are sort of accepted as standard in the call center that would be probably quite controversial for the rest of the staff? Right. And because, yeah, we need management in our organizations. We need management of processes and data and, you know, those things. We need leadership of people, right? And so 
People though want clarity. They want to understand if I'm if I'm going to be successful in this environment, what are the tools and levers and things that I have to to use to be able to to do that? Um, and we don't give them enough clarity in that space for them to know what that looks like. So, how do you get data in front of a fundraiser more quickly to say, no, we're not just forcing you into this box because um, we think it's better for us. We're trying to give you as many resources as we can to move things along as quickly as possible. And there's always tension there. And, and those are things we have to sort out. But um, yeah, there's still a lot of work in, in that space for us to do as a profession. Love it. Well, um, I want to be respectful of time today. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your perspective and some of these specific experiences. Justin, tell me more about just it's June. Are you hiring? How do you envision your own kind of talent landscape evolving? And if folks listening want to learn more, how do they do that? Sure. Um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. We are hiring. Stony Brook's continuing to grow. It has been since I've been here. We, we've uh, had about 40 people join the team in the last two years and have plans to continue to uh, expand pretty significantly here in the near term, again, so that Stony Brook can can realize you know all the things that it's worthy of uh, today. Um, so we have uh, openings uh, across the team um, and people can reach out to me or members of our team to learn more about what we're doing here. Well, Justin is active on LinkedIn. I'd recommend that you uh, shoot him a note there, say hello, uh, let him know you heard uh, his story on the Raise podcast. And, and with that, Justin, just congratulations on a truly uh, historic period, but uh, recognizing that uh, there's a lot more to do both in uh, deploying the investment that you've received effectively and efficiently, and also hopefully inspiring a whole second, third, fourth ongoing waves of supporters to um, to double down um, on that vision. So really amazing and, and congrats and, and enjoy it, even as maybe the initial announcement uh, momentum, uh, you know, fades just a bit here. Thanks, Brent. I really appreciate it. It's great to spend time with you today. Great. So with that, I'm going to sign off with today's guest, Justin Fincher, who serves as Vice President for Advancement and Executive Director of the Stony Brook Foundation. Take care, everybody.